Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, Book 7 of the Harry Potter series. Chapter 1 The Dark Lord Ascending. The two men appear out of nowhere, a few yards apart in the narrow, moonlit line. For a second they stood still, wounds directed at each other's chests. Then, recognizing each other, they stowed their wounds beneath their clothes and started walking briskly in the same direction. News? Asked the taller of the two men. The best, replied Severus Snape. The lane was bordered on the left by wide, low, growing brambles, on the right by a height, neatly manicured hedge. The men's long cloaks flapped around their ankles as they marched. Then I might be light, said Yaxley, his blonde features sliding in and out of sight as the branches of overhanging trees broke the moonlight. It was a little trickier than I expected, but I hope he will be satisfied. You sound confident that your reception will be good? Snape nodded, but did not elaborate. They turned right into a wide driveway that led off the lane. The high ledge curved with them, running off into the distance beyond the pair of impressive wrought iron gates, bearing the men's way. Neither of them broke step. In silence, both raised their left arms in kind of salute and passed straight through as though the dark metal wore smoke. The U had just muffled the sound of the men's footsteps. There was a rustle somewhere to the right. Yaxley drew his horn again, pointing it over his companion's head, but the source of the noise proved to be nothing but more than a pure white peacock, strutting majestically along the top of the hedge. He always did himself well, Lucius. Peacocks. He actually thrust his wand back under his cloak with a snort. A handsome manor house grew out of the darkness at the end of the straight drive, lights glinting in the diamond pane downstairs windows. Somewhere in the dark garden beyond the hedge, a fountain was playing. Gravel crackled beneath their feet as Snape and Yaxley sped towards the front door, which swung inwards at their front as they approached, though nobody had visibly opened it. The hallway was large, dimly lit, and stumptously decorated, with a magnificent carpet covering most of the stone floor. The eyes of the pale faced portraits on the floor walls followed Snape and Yaxley as they strode past. The two men halted at a heavy wooden door leading into the next room. Hesitated for the space of a heartbeat, then Snape turned the bronze handle. The drawing room was full of silent people sitting at a long and ornate table. The room's usual furniture had been pushed carelessly up against the walls. Illumination came from a roaring fire beneath a handsome marble mantelpiece surmounted by a gilded mirror. Snape and Yaxley lingered for a moment on the threshold as their eyes grew accustomed to the lack of light. They were drawn upwards to the strangest feature of the scene, an apparently unconscious human figure hanging upside down over the table, revolving slowly as if suspended by an invisible rope and reflected in the mirror and the bare, polished surface of the table below. None of the people seated underneath this singular sight was looking at it except for a pale young man sitting almost directly below it. He seemed unable to prevent himself from glancing upwards every minute or so. Yaxley, Snape, said a high, clear voice from the head of the table. You are nearly very late. The speaker was seated directly in front of the fireplace so that it was difficult at first for the new arrivals to make out more than a silhouette. 
as they near, drew near, however, his face shone through the gloom, hairless, snake-like, with silts for nostrils and gleaming red eyes, whose pupils, were, whose pupils were vertical. He was so pale that he seemed to emit a pearly glow. Severus, here, said Voldemort, indicating the seat on his immediate right. Yaxley, beside Dolov. The two men took their lot places. Most of the eyes around the table followed Snape, and it was to him that Voldemort spoke first. So, my lord, the Order of Phoenix intends to move Harry Potter from his current place of safety on Saturday next at nightfall. The interest around the table sharpened palpably. Some stiffened, others fidgeted, all gazing at Snape and Voldemort. Saturday at nightfall repeated Voldemort, his red eyes fastened upon Snape's black ones, with such intensity that some of the watchers looked away. Some of the watchers looked away, apparently fearful that this themselves would be scorched by the ferocity of the gaze. Snape, however, looked calmly back into Voldemort's face, and after a moment or two, Voldemort's lipless mouth curved into something like a smile. Good, very good. And this information comes from the source we discussed, said Snape. My lord, Yaxley had leaned forward to look down the long table at Voldemort and Snape. All faces turned to him. My lord, I have heard differently. Yaxley waited. Voldemort did not speak, so he went on. Dwarlish, the order let slip that Porter will not be moved until the 13th, the night before the boy turns 17. Snape was smiling. My source told me that there are plans to lay a false trail. This must be it. No doubt a confounder's charm has been placed upon Wallace. It would not be the first time he is known to be suspectable. I assure you, my lord, Wallace seemed quite certain, said Yaxley. If he has been confounded naturally, he is certain, said Snape. I assure you, Yaxley, the horror office will play no further part in the production of Harry Potter. The Order believes that we have infiltrated the Ministry. The Order's got one thing right then, eh? Said a squat man sitting a short distance from Yaxley. He gave a wheezy giggle that was echoed here and there along the table. Voldemort did not laugh. His gaze had wandered upwards through the body revolving slowly overhead, and he seemed to be lost in thought. My lord, Yaxley went on. Dornish believes an entire party of horrors will be used to transfer the boy. Voldemort held up a large white hand and Yaxley subsided at once, watching resentfully as Voldemort turned back to Snape. Where are they going to hide the boy next? At the home of one of the Order, said Snape. The place, according to the source, has been given every protection that the Order and Ministry together provide. I think that there is a little chance of taking him once he is there, my lord. Unless, of course, the Ministry has fallen before next Saturday which might give us the opportunity to discover and undo enough of the enchantments to break through the rest. Well, Yaxley, Voldemort called down the table, the firelight glinting strangely in his red eyes. Will the Ministry have fallen by next Saturday? Once again, all had stunned. Yaxley squared, squared his shoulders. My lord, I have good news on that score. I have, with difficulty and great effort, succeeded in placing an imperious curse upon pious thickness. Many of those sitting around Yaxley looked impressed. 
His neighbor, Dolov, a man with a long, twisted face, clapped him on the back. It's a start, said Voldemort, but thickness is only one man. Scrimigo must be surrounded by our people before I act. One failed attempt on the ministry's life will set me back a long way. Yes, my lord, that is true, but you know, as head of the magical department of magical law enforcement, Thickness has regular contact not only with the minister himself, but also with the heads of all the other ministry departments. It will, I think, be easy, now that we have such a high-ranking official under our control, to subjugate the others, and then they can all work together to bring Scrimago down. As long as our friend Thickness is not difficult, Discovered before he has converted the rest, said Voldemort. It remains unlikely that the ministry will be in mind before next Saturday. If we cannot touch the boy at his destination, then it must be done while he travels. We are at an advantage there, my lord, said Yaxley, who seemed determined to receive some portion of approval. We now have several people planted within the Department of Magical Transport. If Potter Apparatus uses the flu network, we shall know immediately. He will not do either, said Snape. The order is eschewing any form of transport that is controlled or regulated by the Ministry. They mistrust everything to do with the place. All the better, said Voldemort. He will have to move in the open. Easier to take by far. Again, Voldemort looked up at the slowly revolving body as he went on. I shall attend to the boy in person. There have been many two mistakes where Harry Potter is concerned. Some of them have been my own. That Potter lives is due more to my errors than to his triumphs. The company around the table watched Voldemort apprehensively, each of them by his or her expression, afraid that they might be blamed for Harry Potter's continued existence. Voldemort, however, seemed to be speaking more to himself than to any of them, still addressing the unconscious body above him. I have been careless and so have been thwarted by luck and chance, those records of all but the best laid plans, but I know better now. I understand those things that I did not understand before. I must be the one to kill Harry Potter, and I shall be. At these words, seeming veil sounded, a terrible drawn-out cry of misery and pain. Many of those at the table looked downward, startled for the sound had seemed to issue from below their feet. Vermdale, said Voldemort, with no change in his quite thoughtful tone, and without removing his eyes from the revolving body above. Have I not spoken to you about keeping a prisoner quiet? Yes, my lord, gasped a small man halfway down the table who had been sitting so low in his chair that it appeared at first glance to be unoccupied. Now he scrambled from his seat and scurried from the room, leaving nothing behind him but a curious gleam of silver. As I was saying, continued Voldemort, looking again at the tense faces of his followers, I understand better now. I shall need, for instance, to borrow a wand from one of you before I go to kill Potter. The faces around him displayed nothing but shock. He might have announced that he wanted to borrow one of their arms. No volunteers, said Voldemort. Let's see. Lucius, I see no reason for you to have a wand anymore. Lucius Malfoy looked up. His skin appeared yellowish and waxy in the firelight, and his 
eyes were sunken and shadowed. When he spoke, his voice was hoarse. My lord, you're warned, Lucius. I require you're warned. I... Malfoy glanced at his wife. She was staring straight ahead, quite as pale as he was, her long blonde hair hanging down her back, but beneath the table her slim fingers crossed briefly on her wrist. At her touch, Malfoy put his hand into his robes, withdrew a wound, and passed it along to Voldemort, who held it up in front of his red eyes, examining it closely. What is it? Um, my lord, whispered Malfoy. And the core? Dragon, a uh, dragon heartstring? Good, said Voldemort. He drew out his own wound and compared the lengths. Lucius Malfoy made an involuntary movement. For a fraction of a second, it seemed he expected to receive Voldemort's wound in exchange for his own. The gesture was not missed by Voldemort, whose eyes widened maliciously. Give you my wand, Lucius. My wand? Some of the throng sniggered. I have given you your liberty, Lucius. Is that not enough for you? But I have noticed that you and you and your family seem less than happy of late. What is it about my presence in your home that it displeases you, Lucius? Nothing, nothing, my lord. Such lies, Lucius. The soft voice seemed to hiss on even after the cruel mouth had stopped moving. One or two of the witches barely repressed a shudder as the hissing grew louder. Something heavy could be heard sliding across the floor beneath the table. The huge snake emerged to climb slowly of Voldemort's chair. It rose, seemingly endlessly, and came to rest across Voldemort's shoulders. Its neck, the thickness of a man's thigh, its eyes with their vertical stilts for pupils. Unblinking, Voldemort stroked the creature absently with long thin fingers, still looking at Lucius Malfoy. Why do the Malfoys look so happy with their lot? Is my return, my rise to the power, not the very thing they profess to desire for so many years? Of course, my lord, of course. Sir so Lucius Malfoy, his hand shook as he wiped sweat from his upper lip. We did desire it. We do. To Malfoy's left, his wife made an odd, stiff nod. Her eyes averted from Voldemort and the snake to his right. His son Draco, who had been grazing up the inert body overhead, glancing quickly at Voldemort and Avi again, did a fight to make eye contact. My lord, said the dark woman, halfway down the table, her voice constricted with emotion. It is an honor to have you here. In a family's house, there can be no holy pleasure. She sat beside her sister, as unlike her in looks, with her dark hair and heavily little eyes, as she was in bearing and demeanor where Narcissa sat rigid and impassive. Bellatrix leaned towards Voldemort, for mere words could not demonstrate her longing for closeness. No holy pleasure, repeated Voldemort. His head tilted a little to one side as he considered Bellatrix. That means a great deal, Bellatrix, from you. Her face flooded with colour, her eyes filled with tears of delight. My lord knows I speak nothing but the truth. No higher pleasure, even compared with happy, even that 
I hear is taking place in your family this week. She stared at him, her lips parted, evidently confused. I don't know what you mean, my lord. I'm talking about your niece, Bellatrix, and yours, Lucius, and Narcissa. She has just married the werewolf, Remus Lupin. You must be so proud. There was an eruption of cheering laughter from around the table. Many leaned forward to exchange gleeful looks. A few thumbed the table with their fists. The great snake, disliking the disturbance, opened its mouth wide and hissed angrily. But the detectors did not hear it. So jubilant were they at Bellatrix and the Malfoy's humiliation. Bellatrix's face, recently flushed with happiness, had turned an ugly, blotchy red. She is no niece of ours, my lord. She cried over the outpouring of mirth. We, Narcissa and I, have never set eyes on our sister since she married the mudblood. This brat has nothing to do with either of us, nor any beasts she marries. What say you, Draco? asked Voldemort, and uh, his voice was quiet. It carried clearly through the cat cows and jeers. Philly baby said the cubs. The hill tree mounted. Draco Malfoy looked in terror at his father. He was staring down into his own lap, then caught his mother's eye. She shook her head almost impressively and then resumed her own deadpan stare at the opposite wall. Enough, said Voldemort, stroking the angry snake. Enough. And the laughter died at once. Many of our oldest family trees become a little diseased to a time, he said as Bellatrix gazed at him breathlessly imploring you must prune yours must you not to keep it healthy cut away those parts that threaten the health of the rest yes my lord whispered bellatrix and her eyes swam with tears of gratitude again at the first chance you shall have it said voldemort and in your family so in the world we shall cut away the cankers that infects us until only those of the true blood remain voldemort raised lucius malfoy's wand pointed directly at the slowly revolving figure suspended over the table and give it a tiny flick the figure came to life with a groan and began to struggle against invisible bones do you recognize our guest severus Snape raised his eyes to the upside-down face. All of the Death Eaters were looking up at the captive now, as though they had been given permission to show curiosity as she revolved to face the firefly light. The woman said in a crackled and terrified voice, Severus, help me! Ah, uh, yes, said Snape as the prisoner turned slowly away again. And you, Draco? asked Voldemort, stroking the snake's snap with his worn free hand. Draco shook his head jerkily. Now that the woman had woken, he seemed unable to look at her any more. But he would not have taken her glasses, said Voldemort. For those of you who do not know, we are joined here tonight by Charity Burbage, who until recently taught at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. There were small noises of comprehension around the table. A broad hunched woman with pointed teeth cackled. Yes! Professor Burbage taught the children of witches and wizards all about muggles, how they're not so different from us. One of the Death Eaters spat on the floor. Charity Burbage revolved to face Snape again. Severus, please, please, 
Silence, said Voldemort with another twitch of Malfoy's wand, and Charity fell silent as if gagged. Not content with corrupting and polluting the minds of visiting children, last week Professor Burbage wrote an impassioned defense of mudbloods in the Daily Prophet visits. She says, must accept these thieves of their knowledge and magic. The dwindling of the pure bloods is, says Professor Burbage, a most desirable circumstance. She would have us all mate with muggles, or no doubt werewolves. Nobody laughed this time. There was no mistaking the anger and contempt in Voldemort's voice. For the third time, Charity Burbage walked to face Snape. Tears were pouring from her eyes into her hair. Snape looked back at her, quite impassive as she turned slowly away from him again. Vanakadavra! The flash of green light illuminated every corner of the room. Charity fell with a resounding crash onto the table below. It trembled and creaked. Several of the Death Eaters leapt back in their chairs. Draco fell out of his own onto the floor. Dinner again, eh? said Voldemort softly, softly, and the great snake swayed and slithered from his shoulders on the polished wood.